Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, This is my German voice that I put on because I can't really drink of any Regionales jokes. I'm Nick Houghton of 40%German.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Mannix. And this week we're joined by our guest co-host Marty, the Honourable Husband on Twitter. So welcome back to the show, Marty. How have you been? Nick, I'm really good this week. It's just great here in Munich. How are you, Simon? Yeah, I'm doing sound. Doing sound. Thank you, mate. <laughs> so, what's been happening in Munich, Marty? Anything interesting? Well, I, I had a very positive run-in with German bureaucracy. Ooh, I like those. <laughs> yeah, not not something that uh, that those of us who live in Germany often are able to say. But I had to renew my uh, elektronische Aufenthaltstitel because I had got a new passport. Right, and so I uh, wrote when I got the new passport in June uh, to the Kreisverwaltungsreferat in Ruprechtstrasse, uh, and around September I got a reply, and they said you have an appointment in October, and don't think of changing it unless you get run over by a bus. And if you get run over by a bus, we want the number plate, right? Because all of this they're so overworked, particularly in the mm-hmm. kind of immigration section that they're they're taking a pretty hard line. But I had the best beamter, that's, uh, or amter, I think is what you might also call it, in the office, who brought me in, said, you got the papers, that's fine, asked me the questions, checked absolutely everything, like what color eyes I have, and did that match with what was in the passport and all that sort of stuff, but did it in an extraordinarily quick and efficient and, you know, even with a smile, which was really good. And because I have two passports, he said, I'm going to think ahead. When you come through immigration, if you have, uh, you know, the passport where you were born at at the top of the list, they'll want to see that. But if you have the passport you're using, where the visa is kind of attached to, then uh, they'll want to see that. So he rearranged that. He uh, asked me to confirm my height. And I said I was between 1.81 and 1.8 meters. And he said, I'll put 1.8 because, you know, you're getting on, Marty, and you'll probably shrink a little bit in the course of the past. <laughs> I thought that was, I mean, not in an insulting way, in a very practical way. He's a bit of a surfer dude, I think, in his late 20s, but very, very practical, uh, you know, it was streamlined how you pay for it so it was touchless and all that i still have to wait eight weeks for the little card which is my official visa and i shouldn't even have to to get a new one anyway because of a permanent residence but he also said if i was planning to travel which i am he gave me the official stamped letter that confirms i'd paid the money because that's what the police will look for he said and i should use that as an adjunct to getting through immigration with the old passport that had the uh, sticker, the mm-hmm. new one with the stamp and that. And he just worked it out all with a minimum of fuss. And it was great. And I know there are some listeners who live in Germany who are foreigners who might not have had the same experience. So mm. I'm stoked. <laughs> I, I can also vouch for having a similar experience with the Alfenhalt's Titel. And here in Nuremberg, all the staff seemed to be in their mid-twenties. They were all very young, all very friendly. I heard a lot of English being spoken by Beamters, which is very, very hard to have happen. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that, that Bavaria is doing such a good job on this. I don't know how it is in Berlin and beyond. I think we probably know what it's like in Berlin. <laughs> We've not seen what's been going on in Berlin. It's... It's like their infrastructure just... I'm not sure if it's broken or it never worked, but it just seems like every news story that comes out of Berlin is about, like, we couldn't get the vote right. 
we've broken this system. The airports don't work. <laughs> you know, it's just like always negative. Is that yeah. that's part of the charm, isn't it? Isn't that why people move there to live in a, a slight state of anarchy? Yeah, I guess so. I guess I guess that's it. I, I can't. <laughs> I, obviously, it's the capital city, and I think there's a lot of. It's the funny thing about living in Germany is if if it was Britain, everything revolves around London, but in Germany. Very little revolves around Berlin except sort of politics, <laughs> basically. Uh, one of the things Merkel wanted to do during her tenure was to get more companies to have their headquarters back in Berlin. Because obviously during the Cold War and the division of Berlin, it wasn't a very hospitable place for major companies. So they spread out and you've got them distributed. Certainly the auto automobile industry is distributed through a lot of different cities and by and Siemens headquarters in Munich. So those sorts of things and they all opened headquarters but they were like nominal <laughs> it's like having a post box address oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely i mean the push to actually make berlin a city which had a kind of organic life to it and it wasn't all artificial was really really strong uh you know in the years after the after the the unification but you know, these kind of things don't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I say overnight, I mean probably not in half a century. So there's still sort of that uh, detached, what, mm. what are we actually doing here feeling about Berlin to me? There's, there's not a lot of roll up your sleeves and get mm-hmm. into it. I mean, it, Berlin was, was great for software startups. You know, every app developer moved there simply because... Uh, the people in startups who were living off of ramen for the first couple of years of establishing the business could live there cheaply. But if you actually wanted to do like tech or biotech or something like that, you had to of course. You know, mm. do it in Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, uh, Nordrhein-Westphalia. Well, I think it's funny. You see a lot of the stories about the gentrification of German cities and the stories come out of Hamburg. Hamburg's had some really serious issues, certainly with running down apartments and then clearing out tenants and then selling them these properties for massive markups and you hear a lot with rent especially this year with regards to the the changes and the the laws around what a renter can and cannot do and then they switch back to the original law because that apparently that law was unconstitutional and so you had a lot of issues with rent you don't hear a lot about sort of gentrification of munich and i guess the joke is that munich's always been gentrified right oh gentrified up the wazoo come on it's gone into overdrive now we've got like a new layer of gentrification now and i was thinking about this as i drove my my daughter to uh, nursery the other day driving through these villages that are basically people who live in munich Mm. they're all on the train line the direct ICE train line the the high-speed rail line to munich and that the villages are becoming gentrified because because the people from Munich who have lots of money but can't not enough money to live in Munich now move to the villages and the villages have these like picturesque wine bars it looks like a set for a german tv show a lot of these villages like you look through the the, the town center and there was like fairy lights in the trees and all the the frontage of all the shops looked really sort of antiquated and beautiful and like they've all been refurbed and there's a haberdashery and stuff like that <laughs> You're like Mm. Fairy lights in the trees. Has it got that? That's a super indicator, I'd say. Cupcake shops are the first thing you need to look out for when gentrification happens. It's like if you see a cupcake shop, then there's a coffee shop, 
and then there's a haberdashery, then some fools putting fairy lights in the trees, then you have a wine bar, and eventually that's 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 gentrification complete. Someone's selling cereal by the bowl. I think that's the final level. <laughs> Our wonderful friend Claire, who lives in uh, Wildeshaus, mm-hmm. she's kind of Madame Cupcake. Uh, she's uh, an American <laughs> who's lived here in Germany for many years. And she and I have a a friendly uh, sparring match from time to time about whether cupcakes are just, you know, muffins with hair. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Muffins with hair. I don't know. Big hair, right? You know, they're they're, they're the the late 80s, early 90s muffins. I I would have said they were totally pimped out. Macaroon shops, that's another one. Watch yeah, out for those. <laughs> Someone's making macaroons. You're like, all oh, right, the house prices have just gone up 50%. <laughs> Shit. There was a macaroon shop in Portland, Oregon, where I lived, and yeah. it was more expensive to buy six of them than to buy them individually. <laughs> people still went in and bought six. <laughs> they knew their clientele. These people exactly. don't do maths, I tell you. <laughs> well, no, no, you're paying for the curation. Well, exactly. That, that, there were six curated. Oh, hey, that. Mm-hmm. that makes me feel like angry just saying the word curation. I've curated these cakes for you. No, you fucking haven't. You put them in a box. <laughs> stop, stop lying to me. It's the same as when you hear someone say artisanal bakery and they go, oh, it's like an artisanal bakery's opened. And what you mean, like a bakery? I'm like, it's just a bakery. <laughs> it's not like it's basically a bakery you'd find in every German high street. But now mm. it's artisanal because mm. what they bake it on the premises <laughs> i don't know well that's the same with craft beer isn't it i mean uh, craft beer hasn't taken off in germany mm-hmm. because every beer is craft beer even the big ones exactly exactly i mean it's it must be torture for someone who's come come from america or like gone to america on holiday that seems to be it they go to america on holiday see the craft beer boom come back to a city like nuremberg and go i'll make craft beer and they're like but you've got 52 of the oldest craft beer breweries operating what 10 kilometers from here you know especially in a place mm. like franconia the the monks in the monastery have been doing craft beer for 400 years <laughs> that's essentially what you're competing against ah, you so win. that explains it <laughs> i would i mean like you think about it i've been going on a sort of beer tour because i'm trying to find decent beers where i live and there isn't that many oh, oh controversy there i mean there is <laughs> Oh, there isn't, there isn't, honestly, there isn't that many, as many as Nuremberg, come on. Yeah, like, Nuremberg's got like 50 of the oldest breweries in Germany. I live in the Holy Land, as far as beer is, yeah. You really yeah. do. So, you, you sort of try them out, and a lot of them are just, yeah, I mean, they're just really well-made craft beers that have been making for years. Like, what's the difference? The scale, I guess, is the difference. But you're not going to get, uh, what did I, what was I drinking last night? And I can't remember, they're all impronounceable, these names. <laughs> Well, after one or two of them, they certainly are. Some monastic beer I had last night, and it was made in sort of 13, 14 or something like that. And they're not selling that internationally. You're only going to get it in the region that it's made. Isn't that isn't that essentially mm. a craft beer? I feel like I'm, 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 I feel like I'm having to ex- explain myself. <laughs> well, you know, what, what is a craft beer anyway? Simon, what, what, how would you define a craft beer? You, you once lived in Portland. You should yeah, a Portland model of a craft beer is something ideally that's brewed on site using local ingredients. I guess that's probably about as far as the descriptor would go in Oregon. You, you basically have two choices in, in good beer country in the US. You either pay $3 for a Budweiser or a similar home brand, or you pay 6 to $12 for something that's being brewed by some very interesting hardcore beer lovers. But that, that price distinction can be very, very painful. If you consider that 
rent in a city like Portland is averaging around $1,500 a month, and then your beer is $8 a pint. If you are a normal person working in a coffee shop, you can't really afford to enjoy too much of these. So I guess calling them craft makes it a little bit more like niche and exotic. And I'll do this once in a while, as opposed to consistently drinking session beers like we would in the UK. They are really expensive though, right? They're really expensive in the US. Really expensive. And every now and again, I mean, if you go to a brewery where they'd have 25 different beers on tap, I would always find something I enjoyed. But the primary focus seemed to be IPAs in uh, Indian pale ales. And I'm not a fan. I don't like hops in abundance. And so, yeah, I always kind of felt like I was paying for someone's like hops fetish. Uh, as opposed to a beer that I actually wanted to drink. So yeah, sorry, Portland. <laughs> Didn't really do it for me. Yeah. But but your cannabis culture was fantastic. <laughs> well, I mean, living here in Munich, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Even the big breweries, and there are six of them, they call themselves the Sechsrechtiger, who you know boast how they, uh, how they mm. uh, follow the uh, beer purity laws and everything like that. Uh, all of them have the same kind of standards that you would get from a craft beer, you know, and flavor-wise, and you get them at your local gas station cheap. <laughs> and so uh, my husband and I have a, you know, of the six, like three of them still bear the names of the uh, monasteries that, that did them, like Augustiner, Franciscaner, and Paulaner. And we had some friends who worked for Paulaner, and we kind of developed a taste for their vice beer. So that's kind of our house brew. And, uh, you know, we could go off and find some uh, exotic ones, but it's just, you know, well, beer, I mean, in my beer culture, which is American stroke Australian, beer, like you don't drink it, you rent it. It, <laughs> it has, it quenches your thirst and gets you drunk. And Anything else is a bonus. So we're kind of happy with that. You can definitely get Paulina internationally, Erdinger internationally. You could get occasionally get Augustina, but I would say that that's still quite niche in a lot of places. You certainly I, I haven't come across it in the US. Certainly come across it in Britain. Hofbrauhaus, I think you probably could get internationally. Not oh, yeah. everywhere, but... Yeah. I would say that, that that would stop them being considered traditionally as craft beer. Well, there, there's a there's a Hofbräu house in uh, Pittsburgh where I um, where the city where really? I was born. Yeah, and uh, oh, okay. some friends who work for Paulaner, I mean, also established a uh, a Paulaner brew house in New York. And uh, in both of those cases, part of the I'm making an observation. I, I haven't discussed this with, with anybody in the know, but I'm making the observation both of those places actually brewed on, on the premises. And that's kind of part of the, the right. cult of um, craft beer, certainly in the USA. I mean, there's even a Hofbrauhaus in Las Vegas mm. as well. That's the one that um, Marcus Suda went to when he was celebrating. Was it some kind of cultural connection between America and, and mm-hmm. Germany or Bavaria and America? I can't remember. Gave us gave a speech there that well he does it in English so that's <laughs> that's something. Uh, I think there is those flagship places. I suppose I suppose the po- the point you're making is that what's the difference between brewing a craft beer is probably scale, but the actual process mm. is is probably the same. Like it's a very clean process with Paulina Erdinger, all of these beers, and it was something that it makes trying new beer fun in Germany. Is you can just pull one out of a crate, buy six different ones. And you're not going to get one that's like a proper fail, like that tastes like chemicals or something. They all sort of taste okay. There's just varying degrees of okay. I had one yesterday and I was like, that's quite bitter. Finished it. Probably buy it again later. 
but I probably won't buy it as much as the the, the three I would usually buy or something like that. So I think in that case, in that sense, as a British person, I appreciate being able to try different beers and not go like that's disgusting enough. I think as well with with German beer, there is a learning process. I don't think anybody would arrive here, drink, let's say, for example, a Schlenkera, the Rauch beer, and just be like, oh, yeah, that's an amazing mm. beer. But if you work your way from like a Light Pills to like Lager beer and Keller beer and you head in more sort mm. of caramel and malty directions, your palate will adjust to it and be up for it. But um, yeah, there are acquired tastes for sure. But back home in the UK, it's all lager and it's just slightly different versions of that. And it doesn't matter which one you have, really. The thing I would think is you wouldn't really in Britain go change your beer options. Most people have the beer that they like, and that's the one that they always drink. And you have that in, in, in Germany, obviously, but I think it's out of safety almost. It's like, that's, this is the beer that I buy because it doesn't get as mortal, and I don't end up blacking out, and it's not full of chemicals, and I don't get a horrendous headache. And that's the options, really. Like, if you drink Carlin, like, good luck to you <laughs> if you drink Carlin, because... Cause that's just like drinking wallpaper paste or something it's just it's, it's rank but and it gives you horrendous hangovers like tenants is the same stella like stella artois like yeah it's just it's just graphic what happens to you when you drink that to a, a excess whereas if i drink augustina to excess I, I wake up and i'm a bit tired <laughs> and i have maybe a bit of a headache but i don't feel like i've been brutalized or anything it seems people here have beers they don't drink as opposed to beers they do drink yeah yeah <laughs> and that's it. i don't i don't drink lambsbroy but anything else will be fine um, yeah, yeah exactly i don't touch else. <laughs> the, the thing here in germany beer is mm-hmm. food more than drink well it's taxed differently in, in, in bavaria isn't it oh yeah yeah absolutely and and it gives you it gives you a different outlook it's a much more practical positive i mean one generally demands high standard food all the time, but a high standard beer, if you just drink it to get drunk, you don't necessarily have to have that. And also, um, you know, if you drink a lot of it, sessionability mm-hmm. is important. You mentioned the word bitter, Nick, and that's one of the things in our kind of English speaking world we like because the bit, the more bitter the beer is, the more you can drink of it. You can have longer sessions with more beer, right? Because sweet beer, you mm-hmm. can't drink so much of it, which is where a lot of the American craft beers I'm, I'm not into because they're a bit too sweet. Yeah, there was someone who had iron brew flavoured beer <laughs> from Scotland. And I was just like, well, I'd try it, but you know you're not going to drink that all night. Yeah. Or you got you got this sort of Belgian beers as well, the ones that are quite fruit based, like strawberry mm. beer. That's nice for one, but... I don't know anyone who's like, oh, that's all I drink. <laughs> all I drink is strawberry beer. Okay. Well, that that's why Belgian beer is stronger, because you can only have one. You've got to get your money's worth out of it. It's like a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so, dear listener, you may remember way back in the mists of time of episode 37, Simon and I discussed the Jungendwirt des Jahres 2000 Einenswanzig, and we thought we'd give you a bit of an update. We're, I think, about two or three weeks too late because they announced the winner, and we just totally missed it because we were having fun doing other things. But the winner of the of the coveted prize of word of young person's word of the year was the word cringe, which uh, knocked out my personal favourite, which was papatastish. And I, I can't remember what yours was, Simon. What was your personal favourite word? Oh, uh, I think wild was the one that I liked the most. Wild, yeah, wild. Yeah, wild. Yeah. yeah, and we could have, there could have been digger. Digger was a fun one, but uh, sadly, 
those competitors were beaten to uh, the final position by Cringe, which got 42% of the final vote. And the other top three were Sus and Sheesh, which is fun to say. So, Marty, how do you feel? Is this a word you're going to be using a lot through your day? A bit of cringe there, maybe? Well, this is a bit disappointing. Not only were far too many in the top of the list English words, Mm -hmm. which seems to have been a consistent pattern over the the last decade or so. Two of them were actually kind of, to my ear, Australian, like sus, meaning suspect. Mm -hmm. It's a bit doubtful. And uh, digger. And diggers were the troops that went to Gallipoli. Oh. Or that's where the word came from. Really? Right. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so they, they, they both sound a bit Australian to me. But let, let's get back to cringe. There is no <laughs> earthly reason why German needs the word cringe when we have a perfectly acceptable and I think even better word in German, Fremdschaman. I like mm-hmm. Fremdschaman. I mean, it's longer, but, you know, hey, it's a German word. Go figure. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, Fremdschaman is just much more much more descriptive, and it is German. Mm. It's not borrowed from anybody. Isn't it, is it the shame you feel when someone else makes a mistake? Yeah, shame you feel when somebody else makes a mistake, right? And cringe is exactly that. I mean, in, in English, cringe has two meanings. One is to recoil. Mm-hmm. When you see a spider, you cringe bodily. Uh, but cringe also is when somebody's doing something incredibly embarrassing or, you know, you kind of roll your eyes at it. Uh, and of course, that's that's a long-standing German custom, you know, uh, rolling your eyes at something <laughs> something cringeworthy. Um, and so, I, I, I well, I won't be using cringe. Let me assure you. I, I used the word cringe in one of my lectures the other day, but as a joke because I'm I'm not one of those lecturers who's like, I'm your friend. Let me be your friend. <laughs> but but and everyone everyone laughed thankfully. But I think it's not a word that I'm going to be using particularly. Yeah, I've stopped using wild because I was worried that that might make me look like I'm trying too hard. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the same in other English-speaking countries, but when I, if I heard someone being described as cringy, it can also have a slightly sort of sexual predator element to it that I find a little bit worrying. Oh, right, yeah, totally. That dude's really cringy. Like, it makes me think that he's mm. a, se- a sex pest. Yeah, well, what what would the uh, the sort of sexual version of cringe be in German? You two gentlemen who know German better than me. <laughs> so, you two sex <laughs> pests. I wasn't ready for this test. Um, oh, God. Can I, can I go away and think about it? I'll be back in 10 minutes. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. I have no idea. Right. I know it's a foreign concept to both of you. I have you to ask our wives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well but I, I mean, yeah, I guess it's... Again, you probably end up finding some variant of like creepy or something like that. But I haven't heard people use cringe except on YouTube. Mm. I haven't seen anyone say it or use it on other social media platforms. So maybe I'm just not, well, obviously I'm not on the social media platforms of people who might use the word. The only person I've heard use it is like Rezo or something like that who said it. There's that element of it sounds cool, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I don't, I don't mind the. I kind of like the idea that the the young person's word of the year isn't really German. It smells of progress. <laughs> it maybe isn't progress, but it smells like it. Yeah, it would it would be a much more progressive word if it were Chinese, say for example. <laughs> yeah, I can't see that happening to be honest, but <laughs> I think you're right though. There isn't any French words, there's no Italian words. It's English or German variant. Again, it's just what kids are influenced by the media that they're ingesting and i guess over the last year a lot of that's been amazon netflix youtube and that's going to produce this kind of variance okay well if if it's a new concept 
like you would naturally take the word where the concept arose, which is how, say, for example, in English, we get the word kindergarten, because kindergarten was a German idea. So he adopted that. Here's, here's one from a few years back. N1. 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 Does, does anyone know what N1 is? that like N1, as in the number one? Yeah, N1. yeah, N, N1. What year was it? Was 2010. Oh, okay, so like a decade ago, N1. I have no idea. I have no idea. Means nice one, but it's oh. a very, very efficient way to do it. If you just do N1 when you were texting, because back in 2010, many people kind of did texting from the numerical pad of their Nokia mm. phones. Right. But, uh, and so N1 was a useful abbreviation. That is horrendous. Yeah. My, I, I, <laughs> I H8 that. Yeah, I don't hate it. I, <laughs> Ooh, N1. Have you got, any, have you got yeah. any more to throw at us? Have you got any more of these old, older oh, words? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do? How, how do you like Zwergen adapter? Zwergen? Yeah, gnome like, plug. Gnome plug. <laughs> okay, that was um, gnome plug. Oh, is it a USB? No. Oh, that was a good guess, oh, no, though. But that, that's clearly the metaphor. That's a right? good guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a baby seat. You plug, you plug oh. your baby into the oh. car. <laughs> that's trying too hard, that subject. one. That's really trying. It's like, I'm, I'm, I am funny. Honest, I am a funny word. Look, <laughs> funny, I am funny. I'm not so sure that some of these words weren't planted. Like, for example, this one sounds a bit more naturalistic, Hausfrau Panzer. <sighs> okay, so that I'm guessing it's like an SUV or a car that like a, a, yeah, a middle-class yeah. middle woman would right. be driving. Absolutely right. How about cemetery blonde? Is that is that the actual word, cemetery blonde, or is it Friedhof Blondo or something like that? No, it's English cemetery blonde. Yeah, that's grey hair. Is cemetery blonde? Cemetery blonde. Oh, that's pretty. Ah, okay, that's kind of funny. That that tickles some funny bone somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but you're supposed to go into like your colorist and be like, "It had again cemetery blonde bitter." You, what a, that's right. Have a growl. Cover, cover up my cemetery <laughs> blonde bits on the on the temples. You know that kind of in thing. Br- in Britain, it certainly was a trend with my grandparents. So they would get like a blue rinse, so it was grey, mm-hmm. but it looked blue. Or they'd get like a pink rinse, and so you'd you had the phrase "blue rinse brigade," yeah. which I quite enjoyed, like a collection of old people all together with a blue rinse mm-hmm. brigade. Or the alternative was coffin dodger, which is mm-hmm. I think personally more funny. Than <laughs> we uh, we had a stamtish in my pub. They'd come in every Wednesday for lunch, and they actually booked the table under the Blue Rinse Brigade, and it was a lovely <laughs> group of old dears who would Excellent. come in and have ca- cafe and kuchen. <laughs> yeah. and, and I have I have one last one for you, if you like. Mm-hmm. Kerper Klaus. Kerper Klaus. Body Klaus or Body Nicholas. <laughs> I should I should know. This is rotund. No. Uh, what, did, why did you look at me when you said that? <laughs> Looking directly looking at me, listener. At, he was looking me in the <laughs> eyes when he said it. He, he gave me, he gave me a saucy wink as well. Uh, <laughs> um, I have no idea what it is. That's a clumsy person, and it came from the use. I feel discriminated yeah. against. No, but it, but Germany first heard the world on Germany's next top model of that year, because Heidi Klum, one of the judges, looking at the way the models moved, she said, you know. Uh, what, what was the quote? The feet do not know what the arms are doing. So that's... that's 
Oh. And and what I what I want to know is why did they pick on the poor classes of this world? Why isn't it a corp? Why isn't it a corporate Sebastian? I've seen far more of them. M- Marty, I'm I'm with you on that. I feel I feel discriminated against. I feel like I'm being targeted, and I'm gonna I'm gonna write a complaint. I don't know if it'll have any weight. I'm, I'm gonna send an angry email to someone. I mean, in Heidi's defence, she doesn't speak very good German these days, <laughs> so I think maybe. <laughs> There's a linguistic slip from English. Yeah. But, but oh, to dear. poor Nick, I just want to say, in the least sincere possible fashion I can, I hear you. <laughs> See, this is what I have to put up with, listeners. This is the, this is the kind of treatment I get. All I, all I try and do is be a nice guy. This is all I receive in return. <laughs> so, moving on, we have often talked about television being a way of accessing... German culture being at least the most accessible way of enjoying German culture. And since our conversation many moons ago, Simon converted me to the TV show Shopping Queen, which has Mm -hmm. become a weekly staple in my house. Although, in fairness, I watch it on my own in my office because my wife refuses to watch it with Does me she? yeah she she, she, she gives it? me a very curious look every time i'm saying i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go upstairs and watch shop mcqueen <laughs> practicing <laughs> like, my shopping vocabulary love yeah it's great i love it anyway aside from my love of shopping queen i've also been enjoying some other reality tv morsels shall we say uh, simon's favorite bear is ferreras which is uh, it's not something i've really got into but simon will is still flying the flag I mean, I, to be honest, since we moved house, the TV socket that's like hardwired into the wall is not in the room where my TV is. So I've actually not watched a huge amount of German TV of like we've been more reliant on streaming services. But every now and again, I'll use the app uh, to watch a bit of Bears for Rares, as I lovingly call it, much to the chagrin of my wife, who always corrects my mispronunciation. <laughs> but I, I do find it just a relatively heartwarming tv in its own little weird way it's yeah it's not groundbreaking tv whatsoever but i think coming from the uk where the closest thing we have is antiques roadshow yeah which is very high brow in comparison and mm. um, i actually was friends with someone whose father was the silver expert on antiques roadshow and what a he connection. was just Oh, he was just such a toff. It was painful. Like, imagine him part of Bullingdon Club and the like. And it was just, whenever I watch Antiques Roadshow, it's always experts kind of talking down mm. to people. And like, there's no way you could possibly know this about, but I'm going to tell you. Too many cravats is what you're saying. Too many cravats. A lot of Pocket cravats. squares. A lot of that going on. It's a style. You do you, but no thanks. Whereas the experts they have on Bears for Rares, a lot of them, one of the guys has like full sleeve tattoos and looks like he would be perfectly adept to being a doorman. There's just a friendliness and an understanding that people just want to know how much it's worth, really. (laughs) That's what they're there for. They're not there to really get told how special it is. It's like, how much can I flog it for? And I like that simplicity. It's good. And Horst Lichter, as I've said before, is just a titan of hosting TV shows. He is so good, such a thespian. I love him dearly. My husband and I, we're into antiques, collectibles, decorative art, good bourgeois homosexuals that we are. (laughs) And here in Germany, uh, people don't let stuff that's valuable 
kind of rust in the attic. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what it's worth, what your possessions are there for, and why you're keeping it, and all that kind of stuff. You don't have those well, fortunate discoveries from time to time that you tend to get in more casual, laissez-faire cultures like the UK, the US, and various other places around the world. And so, you know, at the high end, there is already a huge market, and particularly here in Munich, huge market for antiquities, collectibles, fine art, all that kind of stuff. And it is, it is really very elite. Mm. And what Bears Ferrer's, as we say, <laughs> uh, does is that it's much more about the, the curiosity and the stories behind each of the items. It's not so much that, that it's worth any money, but what does the story actually, what does the object actually say? What story does it tell? And there's a, there's a great market in, uh, happens three times a year in Munich called the Hour Dult, which started out as a kind of houseware exchange market for parishioners in, in the Maria Hill church. And it, there are secondhand dealers and things like that. And most of the stuff there actually has a story. It's incredibly well hate to use the word curated, <laughs> but it is. And, you know, it's a fair price for those people who find things interesting. It's not like Christie's auctions mm -hmm. or anything like that. And, and I think that's much more that there is a great deal more meticulous understanding of the value of decorative art and collectibles here in Europe generally, but in Germany in particular. We'll have adult here in Augsburg, quite, quite a famous one, but they only seem to sell kitchen utensils and handicrafts. There's no... Uh, you know one of those markets where there's a guy with one of those headsets on headset microphones. Oh, and shows you how to, yeah, how yeah. to slice vegetables. Yeah, right? yeah. He's like showing you some like kitchen gadget that you, it's going to be sold by Chibo in a couple of months. You know, it's it's one of those deals. I've noticed when I've gotten to flow markets or flea markets that you don't really get as many bargains as you would find in Britain. When I've been to flea markets in Britain, you find you always find something curious that you want to buy that's generally a decent price. Often I'll see something that looks really cool, and then the price is like twenty euros, and you're like, well, I'm not paying twenty euros for like it's cool, but if it's like decorative or something like that, even to the point that I'm obviously got some level of arrested development, but I do like action figures, and I certainly liked action figures a lot more as when i was sort of in my 20s and i've got boxes full of them now but the particular thing that i like is not sort of the stuff you would buy in shops nowadays it's like 80s action figures so you're always looking for like an ultimate warrior you know <laughs> that's the dream you find one of those like teenage mutant ninja turtles stuff like that and so if i see them i'd, I'd, I'd like at least look at them and see if there's worth buying in britain you'd find a box just full of like ghostbusters action figures and the box would be like 10 pence per one <laughs> and you're like all right i that's like worthwhile and i went to one the other day and i had it was there was a, a, a like a big box of just random action figures and i was like well my daughter started playing with them now and i was like well it'd be funny to get some and what you end up with is there were like two or three euros per one and i was like mm. this is a this is a ha like a, a free toy that you would get with a mcdonald's happy meal in 1997 i'm not paying <laughs> four euros for it like it's not worth that much money like come on it's two two cents if you're lucky but like that seems to be the thing you would yeah. encounter you also have very different cultural approaches based on the background mm. of the seller like you can mm -hmm. have a sort of quite a hard-nosed german who's like 
not really interested in negotiating. Then you have like the Balkan attitude where there's a lot more flexibility. There's a lot more variety uh, based on the culture that people come from, I think, how, how intent they are on making turning a profit. Well, let me first of all uh, scold you there, Simon, for uh, for national, uh, you know, doing a national stereotype thing. That's fair. I'm only <laughs> doing that because I'm about to do it myself. <laughs> Cheeky. My husband is Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so the whole tradition of barter and relationships between the buyer and seller is very important mm-hmm. in Asia. And I remember we were actually in Istanbul and we, we kind of got interested in the um, you know, Arabic miniature prints mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm. or paintings, which people would do. A lot of it on paper that had been salvaged uh, from books when... Ataturk had changed from Arabic script for Turkish into Roman script for Turkish, mm-hmm. right? So you often had, like, where the, the paper comes from. So we had a one particularly nice picture of Noah's Ark that was painted on a what apparently was a police blotter. So <laughs> we were there, and we were kind of negotiating with the, uh, the guy at the stall who was selling it as souvenirs. And, oh... I have to hand it to my husband. One of the many reasons I love him just was negotiating in such a way that he didn't allow a personal relationship to start. And I remember mm-hmm. that we finally we didn't end up buying the print that we were talking about. But the seller said, what's wrong? You're not buying an apartment, for Christ's sake. You know, <laughs> Let's come back to Germany. And I find that the only place you can really get those sort of little undiscovered things is in the garage sales that are pe- people are like clearing out their their keller room all the people want to do is to get rid of a whole lot of stuff that's too good to throw away and one fantastic thing this is not about reality tv we're getting off the subject i mean i did actually find something don't know if i want to say this on a podcast lest somebody come and burgle me but the uh, i did manage to find a uh, a print in a very nice kind of mildly gilted frame you know it was a, a picture called Gentleman with a Mustache, or print, that was numbered out of 10, uh, by Georges Rua. And I Mm -hmm. got that home, and I looked at it, and it was actually worth five times what I paid for it. So that's that's the only bit of successful windfall kind of antiquing. And so Bears for Rares has got a different audience with a different purpose, I suspect. Yeah, but you could have, you could have taken that to Horst Lichter and you could have made yourself <laughs> a, a pretty penny, you know? He would have sorted you out right away. Um, <laughs> whether, whether my next reality TV selection would be uh, of similar monetary value, I'm not entirely sure. But another, another TV show that I've, I've come across is Via Hochzeiten und ein Traumreiser, <sighs> which is... A curious bit of television, I'll be perfectly honest. It's basically a wedding competition where the brides get together and rate each other's weddings. So they have a wedding every day and the competing brides will watch the wedding. And then at the end, they'll they'll choose a winner based on points. And that winner gets a thousand euros, I believe, and a honeymoon paid for by the competition. And it's German weddings just straight away are weird. I always find German <laughs> weddings a little bit. If we're going to use the the 
the, uh, the young word of the year a little bit cringy. <laughs> they're, they're always a little bit like they've what people have watched too many films and they've gone, oh, I like that thing in a film and we're going to recreate that. So sometimes you go to a wedding and it's like you're in seven of the most famous wedding movies, you know, Father of the Bride or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so you have those those situations, but but having sort of people there watching it, I thought it would be much harsher. I thought the competitors would be much harsher. But the bits I watched were people basically crying over the speeches given by various family members, which I was like, ah, oh, that's quite clever, like manipulative process of getting someone who's mm-hmm. sort of. And the one I watched that was a relatively recovered from a serious illness was given a speech, and everyone was crying. All the brides watching it were crying it. Everyone in the audience was crying. Everyone in the, watching the wedding was crying, except me. You were crying. No, I wasn't. I, <laughs> I just had something in my eye. And it was, I mean, it was nice. It was a nice speech and everything. But it just felt, it, it, it was a funny competition because there was a lot more sympathy there than, than you would expect. And of course, the, the, the bride and groom were saying, were they saying, ah, yes, this will earn us points. That was what I was right. wondering. But I felt <laughs> it was a little earnest. bit more, Grandma. Right? I did feel it was more earnest. You can lay it on a bit thicker. What what unnerves me though, and even on television, right? I'll never understand this. And when I had when I was married, I made a stipulation about like dress code because it really bugs me when you go to a wedding and you've got the sort of ninety percent of the room are in suits or like nice dresses or whatever they've got they've dressed up for the occasion, and then there's like a couple of uncles in the back wearing jeans and a Camp, Camp David, David shirt, shirt, and you're like. Mm-hmm. What are you doing, man? Like, I'll buy you a suit. <laughs> if you can't get a suit, I'll get you one. But you had that in this. There would be, like, lots of people all dressed up in the finery sitting next to some bloke who'd rocked up in his gardening outfit or something. I don't know. It was just... I find that so weird. We had it at our wedding where some distance... It's one of my wife's great uncles or something. I'm not entirely sure. Him and his wife arrived at the at the service looking like they were going for a ramble. And then they turned up in the evening dressed to the nines. It's like, you've done this the wrong way around. Mm. Like, the formal part is over. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a weird cultural thing in Germany that jeans are acceptable uh, mm-hmm. at a wedding. And so it's not something that would fly in many other places. But even on television, what? It's, yeah. mm-hmm. Of course, weddings were a very personal experience and how large your wedding is will be determined by how many friends you have and what you can afford. And so every now and again, you'll have a combination of contestants where one of them has spent 40,000 euros on a very grandiose wedding. Mm -hmm. And then they have to go and judge someone who's done it for like three grand at their local sports club as cheaply as possible. And I'm very sympathetic to that because we did our wedding as cheaply as we could afford, really. And you can make things work for sure. It doesn't have to feel cheap. But when it's like lit with camera crews Mm -hmm. and maybe 10% of your guests are three brides who you don't know and then a production team it really must take a lot of the allure away for the guests and for the brides uh, and grooms themselves it's a very weird thing to let someone into i think yeah totally well our wedding was was kind of perfect it, it, i refer to it as our skinny little german wedding and uh, and it was uh, and it's not actually a wedding it's a it's civil union because this was back in 2008 Mm-hmm. before marriage equality had, mm-hmm. uh, had reached Germany. Uh, in Bavaria, the idea of two men entering into a domestic partnership was so awful that you couldn't get your civil ceremony at the town hall. You had to have it in a notary's mm-hmm. office out of the eyes of little children, I guess. Um, and, things. and that kind of suited us, really. Mm. 
I mean, first of all, we had to do it in a hurry. So it was a kind of a, a shotgun civil union. Who was holding the shotgun? <laughs> the immigration authority. Ah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good reason to get married. Yes. Okay. Appreciate. That's right. Uh, it, was, it wasn't because either of our sets of parents uh, were concerned about our honour. Certainly not. <laughs> but what we eventually did, I mean, again, we say, you know, we have been to so many fantastic same-sex weddings. Mm-hmm. Great, you know, just spectacular, joyous, festive. And, and you can understand why after waiting for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we joke to each other that we are, and we want to keep going to all of our friends' same-sex weddings too. So keep the invitations coming. <laughs> but we say to ourselves, you know, we're all for gay marriage, but we're uh, gay weddings, kind of, we couldn't imagine having one, really. You know, big housewarming party maybe, mm-hmm. or just a whole lot of friends meeting at a restaurant and we treat them or something. But not not the whole, you know, picking up on the things, uh, you know, a, a lot of the symbolism of, of straight weddings is, is simply not applicable. So what we do is we try to be generous to our friends who've supported our mm. You know, us mm-hmm. as a couple in other ways. Like, why do you have to worry about what everyone else has? But this is obviously the, the whole point of this TV show is like, well, mine's better than yours and I had better flowers. And even though there's some level of harmony between the competitors, I did feel it was a bit like, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't, everyone can't always have the same stuff ultimately. And kind of turning it into a competition seems a bit, it's a bit naff, really. The, of course, culture plays such a big part in mm. this. I mean, you can see how people who are invited to a very Bavarian wedding struggle with that because they're from Hanover or whatever, like mm. just having a Bayerische Hochzeit is weird to them. But of course, that's nothing compared to some of the experiences they're made to have when they were involved in weddings from a completely different culture. Seeing some Germans who aren't really prepared for it being invited to a really African wedding mm. in Germany is a really interesting experience to watch these preconceptions sort of drift away throughout the night. I think that's a really, really positive thing about this show, that it does introduce the audience to the fact that it, these weddings, as weird as they might initially look, are fantastic expressions of love and culture mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. unity. And it's not just like, <laughs> look how weird that particular element is. Yeah. And I think that's something that Germany would certainly benefit more from, from having these multicultural weddings being shown on TV mm-hmm. instead of just really formal, yeah, Catholic services. Yeah. Well, I, again, that's the, the polar opposite where love... Uh, <laughs> where there is almost no expression of love and joy and culture. And that's Bauer sucht Frau, wife. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that's one of the first shows I watched in, in German was Bauer sucht Frau, and I found that to be... There's no uh, there's no English language equivalent other than... The, there's an Australian version, I think, but there's no... There was a UK one. It was called Farmer Wants a Wife yeah, in 2001. Wife, yeah. Really? Yeah. That's mm. it. And how long did it last? How many seasons? One year. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, I don't think it... It doesn't have the same currency as it does here. And it was interesting reading an article from, I think it's the Farming Association in Germany saying, this is a terrible example of what farmers are like. They all look like country bumpkins. I'm like, have you not seen reality TV show, shows before? <laughs> They're not going to put on the person who's like not the obvious stereotype or like to speak some oh, yeah, impronounceable yeah. dialect. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, normal people. How icky, mm. terrible stuff. But the but the Australian version is on. It, it, I think it's been it's now in a dozen seasons. Mm. And if you watch that, one of the things I mean, Bauer Frau always chooses like the dorkiest 
dweebiest. We should enter those in the uh, Unicorn <laughs> next week. Um, dorkiest, dweebiest farmers who are kind of losers. And I think there's, there's also an ORF, there's an Austrian like television version of Tinder mm. where you just have people who <laughs> cannot find, you know, unless they enter a game show, they're not, they're not going to, you know, charm their way a into part. a partner. Yeah. But, you know, the Australian version, which I was kind of used to, all of the guys... They're they're hot. They're crocodile dundee. <laughs> they're 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 athletic and you know, and most of them can cook. By the way, absolutely chalk and cheese, completely mm. different. And there's there's something kind of sexy about the outback adventurer, the crocodile dundee type, literally in Australia, which mm. isn't the same with the German farmer. I suspect. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Paul Hogan did a lot of good <laughs> for that for that concept. Well, yeah, well, well. Yeah. Oh, let's let's not go there. But we, <laughs> why not? Why not? <laughs> say, for example, here's the here's how the second series of Australian Farmer Seeks Wife describes it. It's Rob from Mount Gambier. It hasn't been easy, but the most difficult part is the loneliness of having no partner to share it with, and that's about the the biggest loser that um, that we can say in in the whole thing. In two thousand and nine, uh, you know. Uh, there, I think there was a same-sex partner, Jenny, who was a farmer. She says, I'm into serious relationships, not casual flings or time wasters. Uh, Andrew says, I like to brighten someone's day when they're down. Paul says, I'm not afraid to show affection in public. Ralph calls himself the playboy farmer. Tim calls himself the good-looking one. And Damien calls himself the Tasmanian. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wish I knew what that, what that indicated. Does it mean that he spins round really, really fast? Like, uh, oh, you mean my like closest the understanding of Tasmanian devil. is the Tasmanian devil from Warner Brothers? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, Tasmanians, uh, yeah, it, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, Tasmania has a limited gene pool, right? Ah, and so that's that's the subject. Well, I'm not going to say that. No, Tasmania does not have a limited gene pool, but it is the joke. I was going to say, does it just Tasmania, mean I'm in Australian joke? It's like Tasmania. if I said I'm I'm Cornish, <laughs> Some, something like that. Yeah, but the thing is, I mean, dating wedding shows—they're not this this kind of exuberant thing in Ger- in the German-speaking world. They're much more personal and sentimental. Well, moving away from this isn't quite a dating show. In fact, I was amazed it's still on the air. Uh, Frauentausch, which is wife yeah. swap. And it started in 2003 and is still an ongoing concern, which is amazing. Like, there's people who've watched it who are like, you know, I, I want to be on that TV show. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I want to go on. Like, why would you want to put yourself through through that? I mean, it's, it's glory days are, are fading because it's now been moved from primetime TV and it is now part of hangover television. Right. It's, it's, it's right. daytime TV these days. Um, so that, that's some there's some positive news, but yeah, it's over 500 episodes have been shown in Germany. Some stuff in Germany just hangs around, doesn't it? Like, like it's like a cultural artifact. It's like this is what we used to enjoy mm. in the early 2000s, and you can still enjoy it now. Whereas in Britain, it would just be cancelled, done. We've done with this. It's now going to a channel that just shows repeats. I mean, Germany has a different relationship with TV shows that I guess we we refer to in the UK as poverty porn. Mm where we watch poor people existing be, uh, and yeah. feel better about ourselves. Frauentausch is one of the few examples 
where you have that duality. But I mean, there is still a lot of poverty mm-hmm. porn on TV here in Germany, and it's normally following homeless drug mm-hmm. addicts around train stations in, in major cities. And it is it's a harrowing experience watching mm-hmm. this stuff. So I think Frauentausch is one that allows you to dip your toe into a feeling of, thank God why I don't have it that bad. And also you get to judge people's parenting, which a lot oh, of people love seem that. to get that off The Germans on. love that. Mm. There's a certain yeah. certain swathe of Germany that's like, I do enjoy commenting on whether your child is wearing socks or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely so. That, and I guess, you know, that sort of class distinctions, which we like to think we don't have mm. a lot of in Germany, television is part of that. There is, you know, highbrow entertainment. There's quality television in Germany, and the quality television movement probably arrived in Germany a little bit late, you know, with things like you know, mm. uh, Berlin, Berlin, or, or whatever it is, and um, uh, Deutschland 86, uh, and things like that. So mm. there's, there's a lot, you know, there's always been quality film in Germany, but quality television has, you know, it was about 20 years after The Sopranos first debuted that Deutschland 86, I think, mm. uh, debuted. So it was a bit mm. later coming, and part of that is the television is, you know, is mass entertainment. The The idea of quality television, like the... The BBC fostered in the UK, say, very mm. different here. And so I, I think German TV in general is climbing the social ladder a little bit. But these are last vestigial bits mm-hmm. of, as you've described it, poverty porn, which is like everyone said, yeah, what's well, television? Of course it is. Uh, and, you know, trashy. We actually have given up on German TV probably about 2011. And there are two things that that did that for us. One was the series where, reality series, where Brigitte Nielsen came to Dusseldorf to have a whole bunch of cosmetic surgery done. Oh, God. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, we thought, this has (laughs) got to be so bad it's good, but it was so bad that it wasn't even good. (laughs) Particularly, particularly, you know, the bit where she bought, because she had a a very young husband at the time, she was a recovering alcoholic. So the whole thing had, you know, she'd fallen off the wagon. There was lots of really mm-hmm. terribly catty comments about how she was trying to look as young as her husband. And then when her dog died, oh, God, hearts and violins. It all just came out. And I think, you know, we, I don't think the TV has been turned on since then. <laughs> but then I, I actually went online to watch something called the Nervigsten Deutschen uh, in 2011. <laughs> this this was an annual thing, which is the most annoying Germans. Like, how could, <laughs> how could you say, so oh, yeah, I, I want to watch those people because they annoy me so much. Yeah. And uh, apparently people are shamelessly happy and having a good time are the most annoying Germans, it seems so. That and the Pope of, of the day. Which was was the, was the Pope was the Pope one of the he came the in number four fourth most annoying German. I just I mean wow. I thought it was a strange concept for a TV show. Why does it need to be made? It just seems like mean. Like, oh, you're the most annoying person. I'm sure there was a show like that in Britain. I think it was only on for a, a season. Maybe they did it once over a Christmas, but it just seemed unnecessarily targeted towards sort of individuals. I think it seems, and it, there is that element of punching down that you get with a lot of entertainment and you mentioned the bbc and i think the the conflict that seems to be happening and with entertainment like entertainment whatever you want to describe it is is that the wannabe the bbc 
but they also want to make as much money as American television. Mm. And so that what you end up with, like I watched for a blog, I watched the uh, Great British Bake Off and De Gross, is it De Grossa Bakken? I think it is. I might have wrongly gendered is that. It that but anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. So, um, and what was noticeable straight away, the Great British Bake Off looks like a Terrence, Terrence Malick film. It's shot with like in the most beautiful way. Some ma- like lovely camera angles. It's clearly very well produced. In- the interstitial bits are really sort of gentle, and it's quite a gentle theme throughout the show. It's not aggressive, and it's quite nice. And the German version was still quite gentle. It wasn't abusive and nasty. They only had one host, and it was like it was like the sugary cereal versus the <laughs> bowl of like organic muesli. That was what it felt like. Uh, and it was shot in such a way that it was like a lot of sort of whiz bang interstitial bits and lots of narration and voiceover. And you could see where the money was being skimped on mm. uh, of the production. And I think there's a lot of these shows, even the cheap, like the cheapest kind of TV you get in Britain is definitely something you'd see on prime time in, 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 in Germany. You see that with all of these kinds of shows as well. They're just cheap to make mm. and you can run them out. You can do, you could do a season in a month. And then, like you can, the production team can move on to doing another show. The next show, I think this will be the final show that we talk about. So, the final show I wanted to bring up was Germany's Next Top Model. When Simon sent me the notes for for this particular episode, I didn't realize how grim it's dark. Germany's Next Top Model really is. Currently, it's sitting at sixteen seasons with two hundred and thirty five episodes. Uh, it's hosted by um, Heidi Klum, of course. And who's also the executive producer? But it's it's been racked by scandal. Simon, do you want to run us through some of these scandals? I mean, there are loads of them. I, I I left a lot out. I mean, a lot of it stems from the fact that the winner, one of the things you get is a contract with a fashion company that's run by Heidi Klum's father, and his reputation in the industry is pretty questionable. Uh, so we have former judges saying things. So uh, Rolf Scheider criticised the programme, saying. Quotes the show has never produced the new Nadia Auermann or Claudia Schiffer, end quote, and that girls lack modelling talent are selected purely for ratings. Uh, one of the contestants from season five, Miriam Huller, said that contestants are poorly treated on the show. They're not given enough food or their mobile phones are taken away. She also said that Heidi was extremely cold and criticised cooperation with her father. A psychiatrist, Manfred Lutz, said, according to the... Uh, a study of the show promoted anorexia, which, of course, isn't what you want on TV. And one of my favourite members of the GNTM family is Wolfgang Joop. I love Joop because I have always thought his name was Joop because I'm British. And I would exult by saying Joop every time he appeared on show and my <laughs> wife eventually got bored of it. It's how I stopped watching it. But even he criticised the show, saying he didn't want to be part of it anymore since, quote, the viewers expect things that the fashion expert does not, namely contestants collapsing, getting homesick, crying and falling on their heels. These are stories that do not interest us in the fashion world. Uh, so, yeah, shout out to, to Wolfgang Joop for, for being the voice of reason in a pretty unreasonable show. Pretty scathing, for sure. That's not even the worst one. The worst, the worst one I read was from was it twenty twenty or twenty twenty one? The most recent season, uh, there was a contestant that had some some issues. Uh, so it's Liana uh, Kagwa, uh, I think is how it has, how it was said. And yeah, she got death threats. Um, she got spat on 
in the street. Her car was vandalized. Oh, Someone tried nice. to poison her dog. And she ended up under police protection for going on a fucking reality show. Well, well apparently what she did, which didn't seem that extreme, and actually, if you're going to, if you if your plan is to do reality TV, which was the thing you would do in the early 2000s, you go on your reality TV and turn that or carve out some kind of character for yourself that you would then go on to do other TV shows and things like that. There's been plenty of people who've created a public persona on the back of a reality television show, some successfully, some not so successfully, and some, in the case of Katie Hopkins, horrifically. Mm -hmm. What you have with this example was that she decided to quit on the live final, which I was like, that's actually bright, you know. Like, if you think you're not going to win, quitting, making a big stink, everyone knows your name, get on some chat shows, get get some some sort of news stories and stuff and try and turn that into some kind of career for yourself if you want to be in entertainment. That's a really sensible thing. But it seems to have sparked a lot of anger from people watching it. Her behaviour wasn't wasn't fantastic on the show. I mean, I, she, started, she started a lot of shit with people. She was very provocative and once her hackles were up she did not give a fuck she went for the jugular on people on a regular basis yeah i I, when i was watching it me and my wife did watch that one i found it very hard to watch because of just how antisocial the behavior was and it was being promoted within the the clique but that's what that's what mm-hmm. people want, though, isn't it? That's why they're watching it. It's like it's like idea of going. Oh, I ate this chocolate, and now I got I've, I've gained weight. I'm gonna sue the chocolate company. It's like why are you watching this particular reality TV show? Is it because you want to see everyone have a lovely time and have nice conversations and wear some nice clothes, and and the judges will say some nice things about you, and then at the end someone nice will win? That's not why people <laughs> are watching that show. Like that's a show that will never get made. <laughs> No. Well, Germany's next top model really needs to sit down and watch the entire, you know, dozen seasons or so of RuPaul's Drag Race. I've never watched neither, RuPaul's actually, Drag Race. Yeah. I'm, I was interested yeah. by what you were going to say about that. An acquired that. taste. I haven't, I haven't done so much of it. I mean, I've done it because, you know, I just mm. want to, you know, support the team and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But, but RuPaul's Drag Race has all of that kind of manufactured conflict and interpersonal mm. tension and all that kind of stuff, but done in such a self-effacing and uh, ultimately good-hearted way. I mean, in some cases, you know, it does kind of venture into something that's a little bit personal. Mm. But, you know, when you start looking at that and saying, look, this is not that serious, you know the world, and I, I have a lot of time for the fashion world. I think the fashion world is an extraordinary aesthetic exercise, right? But the modeling world is different, right? Mm. And in many ways, you know, the um, the whole drag culture sends it up. So I'm kind of I kind of think that uh, you know. Heidi, if you're listening, you need to develop a bit of a sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> maybe, maybe you ought to have some, I don't know, joke writers. <laughs> Servus, Leute. A big thank you to Tenyet and the Ultras who retweeted the show last week. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag decades from home or lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. 
As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, and you can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40%German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss!